I have the uh, wonderful privilege today to preach. I'm excited. We're in Genesis chapter 34. This is the word of the Lord. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great as, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a great disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their word pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let, let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth 
all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me to stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. One way that we can read Genesis 34 is to read it as just one big cautionary tale, like God recorded it for us to say, don't be like these characters here. Don't be too curious and foolish like Dinah. Don't be lust crazed like Shechem. Don't be like Hamor, the spineless father who doesn't correct his son, but bows to his every whim. Don't be like Jacob, who's much too passive and fearful. Don't be like Simeon and Levi, who are much too aggressive and presumptuous, seeking revenge instead of leaving vengeance to the Lord. The end. We could read it like that. And that, I think all those things are true enough. Don't be like these guys in this story. And another thought that comes to my mind uh, when I read texts like this is that if, if, this is, if the Bible is a mythology that's just, you know, trying to get us to believe a lie, then stories like this that do not endear our heroes and our fathers would not, would not be included. And I think that's true as well. But both of these thoughts, um, while true, are still n- insufficient. There's got to be more here than just a cautionary tale or abstract proof that the Bible is true. So Genesis 34 is not just teaching us why we should avoid sexual sin or why we should leave vengeance to the Lord. The story isn't pointing us to moralism. The story is pointing us to Christ. It communicates moral truths to us, no doubt, but, but it's not pointing us to moralism. It's pointing us beyond those truths, pointing us to Christ and to his gospel, which means the chapter calls us to trust God. That's what that means. When it points us to Jesus, what that means is it's calling us, this chapter is calling us to trust God. So if you struggle, and I should say when you struggle, because we will all struggle with seeing Jesus in all of scripture, the first thing you must do is to get on your face before your heavenly father and, and beg him to open up his word to you. Get on your face and beg him to open up his word to you by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. And then get up and open your Bible and read your Bible. Open up books, read books about theology, read commentaries, listen to sermons. And when you do this by faith, asking God to show you his son, he will. He will. You can be certain that he will. You will begin to see that there really is a gospel thread throughout the entire Bible you'll begin to see the meta-narrative, the overarching narrative of the entire Bible. You'll begin to see that what that narrative is, is the defeat of a dragon, divine redemption of a damsel in distress. The whole Bible summed up in one sentence, how God sent his son to kill the dragon and get the girl. How God sent his son to kill the dragon and get the girl. And I, I freely grant that that's not always to see the overarching picture when you read your Bible in the morning for 15 minutes or when you're looking at your own stories, when you're reading your own stories, it's not always to see the overarching picture of victory. And 
you have to, it's tr- that's true, it's not easy. When you're reading your Bible, when you're reading your stories, it's true, but you've got to keep in mind that your, your vantage point is the back of a tapestry. Do you know what a tapestry is? The, they create pictures with threads. Your vantage point is the back side of that, and so it looks messy. It looks discombobulated. You see a bunch of loose ends. We're seeing a bunch of loose ends that will ultimately culminate in Christ, who conquered sin and defeated death and the devil. So Genesis 34 points us to this Messiah, to his gospel. So let's pray this morning as we dive into this text that God would open up his word to us, that he would illuminate his word to us, that we would see Christ. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please show us Jesus. God, search our hearts this morning. Take away those things that hinder us from seeing our Savior in your word. Open our eyes, our ears, and our minds this morning. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Jacob comes to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. We saw this at the very end of chapter 33. And he camps before the city. He buys from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, the piece of land where he's camping. And he erects an altar that he calls El Elohi Israel, God the God of Israel. Dinah's troubles begin when she goes out to see the women of of the land. Shechem the Hivite sees Dinah, takes her, has his way with her. He defiles her, he humiliates her. And we may assume this is portraying a violent rape, but the Hebrew text apparently doesn't describe it so severe. It's more likely that she was seduced by Shechem. And um, that kind of may be hard for us to see because the way the wording is in our Bibles, but it's, it's describing more of a seduction of, of Shechem seducing Dinah. And he seizes her, he, humili- he, he humiliates her, he defiles her, but we also see that he has fallen madly in love with her. Shechem tells his father Hamor the Hivite, who is the prince of the city, that is also named Shechem, that he must marry Dinah. So they go and make an offer to Jacob. In that day, it's customary to let the older brothers be the negotiators for the marriages. And so Jacob waits for his sons to come back in from their work, from the fields. Jacob's sons return when they hear what's been done to their sister. And not surprisingly, they are furious. In an effort to pacify Dinah's brothers, Hamor tells them just how much his son wants to marry their sister. Shechem himself pleads his love, pledges his love for Dinah in exchange for Dinah. Uh, he offers them a very great bride, a very great bride price, and a gift of whatever they ask. Israel, intermarrying with other nations. Oh, sorry, but uh, when we look at the text, we notice that Hamor's not just asking for the marriage of the. Uh, of Dinah and Shechem. That's not what all he's there for. He's also asking for intermarrying between all of his people and all of Israel. The problem with that, Israel intermarrying with other nations was frowned upon at this point in history and commands would later be given in the law of Moses about it. So the brothers were right in not giving into Hamor's request for God's people to intermarry with the Hivites because it would have meant assimilation into their culture, it would have been, uh, they would have lost their distinct identity as God's people. So 
they're right in not giving in, but we see that they are not concerned with God's glory here. They're not concerned with God's glory. They're fixed on revenge. So they devise a plan. Jacob, the deceiver, we see is reaping what he has sown. His sons tell Shechem and Hamor that they would agree to allow Dinah and their daughters to marry the Hivites and that they would take their daughters to wife as well if all the men of Shechem would become like them and be circumcised. But they never intended to give Dinah or or their daughters or take their daughters, but they intended to kill them while they're recovering and incapable of fighting back. And on the third day, that's exactly what they do. Their plan works. The men agree. Shechem is so in love with this woman, with Dinah. And Hamor obviously likes the idea of a treaty with these people. In a display of their considerable power and influence, they convince all the men of the city to be circumcised. That's some serious power and influence right there. They convince them to be circumcised and they take God's sign of the covenant. While the men of Shechem are recovering from their painful procedure, Simeon and Levi take swords. Simeon and Levi, by the way, are Dinah's full brothers by Leah. So Jacob, remember, had uh, married Leah and then he married Rachel and then both of those women gave him concubines. So Jacob has 12 sons at this point and uh, but not all of them were full brothers and sisters. So Dinah's full brothers were Simeon and Levi. So Simeon and Levi take swords and they attack the city. They kill Hamor, Shechem. They take their sister out of the house. They kill all the men. And then the sons of Jacob, consumed with revenge, plunder the city, taking sheep and oxen and their donkeys, all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, and all that is in their house. After that, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Instead of his sons repenting, they double down and they justify themselves. So remember, Jacob comes into the land, to this land, building an altar pointing to God. Jacob's worship, his devotion to his God is on display to the nations, to these people. He is sent here as a visible witness to these people. God, the God of Israel, he calls his altar. This is also, again, why it was a problem for them to intermarry with these people. Because they they were to stand apart as distinct, holy, and sanctified. They were to bear witness to the otherness of God. To the superiority, not of their race, to the superiority of their God. These people were pagans. They had many gods. The nations had many gods. And Israel was to stand apart as distinct showing the superiority of the one true God. Abraham made it clear to Isaac that he was not to take a wife of the daughters of the Canaanites. We see that in Genesis chapter 24. Isaac, when he had blessed Jacob, charged him that he should not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, Genesis 28. Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please Isaac, Genesis 28. The reason for this, at least in part, was a matter of covenant. So in other words, it isn't right for two different kinds to be joined 
together, to, co- to covenant together. This is why later we see in Deuteronomy, the law forbade Israel to plant two different kinds of grape seeds in a single vineyard. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verses 9, 10, and 11, we see a prohibition, do not plant two different kinds of grape seed in a vineyard. We see a prohibition not to yoke an ox and a donkey together. We see a prohibition not to wear clothes with mixed fabrics. That seems silly to us. We're all wearing mixed blended clothes here. The point of that was to show two different kinds cannot be joined together. This was a matter of covenant. This is why, coincidentally or not, this is why that if we are to have fellowship with God, if we are to covenant with God, this is why we must be born again because two different kinds cannot be joined together. We have to be changed. In 2 Corinthians 6, chapter, four, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does, believe, does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God calls Abraham out from his father's house, out from his country to follow God by faith, to be a witness, to bring about the blessing of all the families of the earth. Genesis chapter 12, verse three. I don't know if it's gonna be on the screen. Genesis chapter 12, verse three records for us the blessing that God gives to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later, Paul goes back to this very thing and he says, God preached the gospel to Abraham here in talking about the Gentiles, the nations coming in to salvation. God's people were and are to live distinct lives as those who have been set free, who have been set apart by a holy God and to a holy God who have been called out of darkness into light. We have been called out of darkness into light. We have been called out of slavery into freedom, out of death into life. So hopefully when we read Genesis 34, we can all see at least one thing. We can all see that what Simeon and Levi did was not right. It was not justice. It was not right by any calculation. Even if we, even if we were to assume the very worst that, that Shechem violated Dinah in the most violent way. Even if we were to assume that what, what Simeon and Levi did was not justice. It wasn't right. Uh, Shechem's sin, however great or small you may believe it, it was, did not warrant the annihilation of all of the men of that city. Shechem sinned. Shechem needed to be dealt with. Okay? So 
what we see here, Simeon and Levi taking revenge. And, and the Bible makes that clear. This is a massacre. This is vengeance. This is pure hatred. So, but that's not all. We also see Simeon and Levi, while they're guilty of murder, they're guilty of vengeance, they're guilty of hatred, they're, they're also guilty of vainly using God's name as a pretext for their slaughter. As a pretext for their sin, they use God's name. And, and also what we see is they, they completely pervert and disregard the significance and the meaning of circumcision. Circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham. Abraham was Jacob's grandpa. So we're not far out of this. We're not too far out of this. Circumcision given to Abraham as the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision signaled freedom from a yoke of bondage. It was a sign that the old man is put off, that, uh, that, Freedom has come that the flesh has been removed. So as a consequence, that physical sign, actually uh, the actual cutting away of the foreskin on just the males, because that's all it applied to, signaled itself the cutting away of the flesh of our heart. And And we see this, this is true in the old covenant and this is true in the new covenant. In Deuteronomy, this is exactly what God says. You must be circumcised in your heart. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans. You have to be circumcised in your heart. So this was itself a sign of God's covenant with all of Israel, sons and daughters who must be, who must put that flesh off from their heart, who must be cut off and be changed, be transformed, be removed from the yoke of bondage into freedom. Circumcision was given as a sign that God's people have passed from death to life that we have been shown favor and grace by a covenant keeping God. I don't have time to go into it, but when you look at when God gave this covenant to Abraham, when God covenanted with Abraham, it is the most unbelievable picture you will see. You will see a God who makes covenant with Abraham and, and promises to keep it himself. It's, it's beautiful. Go read it sometime this week. So this is a picture of the covenant keeping God. Did not Simeon and Levi remember this? That Abraham the, Abraham and the mighty nation that would come from him, through, that, through them, God was going to bless all the families of the earth? Did they not remember that it was to Abraham that God gave this calling and the sign of that calling was circumcision? So the argument can be made that the Hivites were only vainly agreeing to be circumcised for selfish gain, but regardless, we should recognize and I would agree with that. Yeah, they were agreeing to this circumcision for selfish gain, vainly. But I want, I want you to know, I want you to see that the Holy Spirit is at work here still. God's divine providence is at work here still. We should recognize the effectual promise of God to bless the nations is at work here in Genesis 34. In this tragic mess. So, Think about this. Here we have a young Levi who is a namesake for the priest, the mediators between God and man. Say to these Hivites, obey God, the God of Israel, and we will become one people. Levi is lying 
Levi is deceiving, but God is not. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So instead of rejoicing at the repentance of Shechem, at the unbelievable willingness of the, Hivite, of the Hivites to come into covenant with God, Simeon and Levi kill their covenant brothers and they hamstring their father in his ability to witness to the surrounding Gentiles. So what we see in Genesis 49, if we skipped ahead, which we'll get to it in the weeks to come, Genesis 49, five through seven, Jacob is preparing to die. He blesses his sons. And when he gets to Simeon and Levi, Jacob's words to them are regarding the events of Genesis 34, are, are regarding uh, this mess in Shechem. And he says toward the end, they hamstrung an ox. And if you remember what we read, this is odd because we're told that they took all the flocks. They took, they plundered the city. They took it and they kept it. Their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys. So what is Jacob talking about? I believe that uh, he's talking about himself and his witness. So if you compare the, I don't speak Hebrew, but yeah, I have it on good authority. If you compare the Hebrew text of Genesis 49, 6, hamstrung an ox, that phrase hamstrung an ox. If you compare that with Genesis 34, 30, when, when he says to Simeon and Levi again in, Gen, in 34, you have troubled me. So he says in, in chapter 34 to Simeon, Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me. And, and in 49, he says, they, you hamstrung an ox. If you compare those two um, texts, you would notice a pun. You would notice a pun. You hamstrung an ox, you car an ox. You troubled me, you accard me. It's not the same word, it's, but they, they're pronounced practically the same. You would notice the pun there. So I, I don't, this could be a coincidence, but I don't believe it's a coincidence. I believe Jacob is talking about himself, his own witness that was hamstrung by his son's sinful actions. They made Jacob to stink to the nation. So it's interesting then to note that if Jacob identifies himself as an ox, a hamstrung ox, the name of Hamor means donkey. So that could be another coincidence, maybe. Or perhaps this event is in view later when the law is given, prohibiting yoking an ox and a donkey together. Regardless what it does, regardless what it does, that could, those could just be really cool coincidences, but regardless, what that does for us is it reminds us that we must be born again. We must be born again, made a different kind by grace through faith. So remember, we are to look through the window of these chapters and verses to Christ, who is our life. And this slaughter at Shechem, amazingly, is not the end of the story for any of these characters. We see Jacob go on, and we'll see this as we go on in Genesis. Jacob goes on to be used by God, to be blessed by God. Simeon and Levi go on to become the tribe's part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Obviously, Levi, you know, becomes the priest of the land. And even when you read in, in Genesis 49, their blessings don't seem much like blessings, but they turn, to, turn out to be blessings in the end. They're scattering. And then there are the Hivites. Their story does not end here either. Besides being mentioned in lists, and in, in passing a few times throughout the Bible, there's one other place, there's one other story in the Bible specifically about Hivites, and it's found in Joshua 
chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. I don't have time to read it to you, I don't believe, so I'm going to sum it up for you, and you can make a note and go back and, and check it out for yourselves. So what we see in Joshua chapter 9, Israel is conquering the land. Joshua is going in to conquer the land, and they are, um, they are coming in with a reputation. They're coming in and the people who they're coming to conquer know who they are, know what their God has done. And so fear is struck the hearts of the lands uh, of the inhabitants of Canaan. So what in Joshua chapter nine, it records for us Hivites from Gibeon hear a report of God and all that he did, all that he did in Egypt and what he did to the other kings and what he commanded Moses to do to the nations, to destroy the nations. So they load up their donkeys and they go to Joshua. These Hivites say, we've come because of the name of the Lord, your God. In Joshua 10, 2, we learn that, the Gibeon, that Gibeon is a great city, and it says all their men were warriors. In fact, the fact that, the, that these Gibeonites came and, and surrendered to Joshua terrified the other nations. They said, these guys could kill all of us, and they're surrendering. What? This is a big deal. The Gibeonites were a pretty big deal. All their men were warriors. That means instead of trusting in their own strength to save them from God, they come to believe that he is true, that his words are true, that when he says to destroy them, that they will be destroyed, that that's true, that his command to Moses was true. And so these great and mighty Hivites from Gibeon come and they humble themselves and they Fear God. Anytime I hear the phrase fear God, you know what I think of? I think of the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That was totally on the side. They come, they humble themselves, they fear God. So get this picture in your head. They leave their home, they leave their country, they forsake their own strength. They, fors- they forsake their own strength and they turn to Yeshua to save them. They turn to Joshua, Yeshua, to save them. The, these are Gentiles. They are in an impossible situation. Do we hear ourselves in this? They are Gentiles in an impossible situation. They see Israel. They see Israel's God who fights for them and they know that they are staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. They devise a cunning plan to covenant with God's people through Joshua in order to be saved. They turn to Yeshua to save them from their inevitable demise. And guess what? He does. Joshua and the elders, without consulting God, make peace with these Gentiles. They covenant together, just like before. So 
Just like before, a covenant is made between these two people under less than ideal circumstances. Both times, one party is deceiving the other. Both times, the Israelites... (laughs) This is so unbelievable to me. Both times, one party is deceiving the other. And both times, Israel goes to their new covenanted brothers after three days. The difference is the first time after three days, Israel goes to their new covenanted brothers and they kill them. They break covenant. This time we see Joshua find out their neighbors. They lied. He goes to them after three days. And what does he do? Does he kill them? No, he keeps covenant with them. James B. Jordan points out, it's often assumed that Yahweh would have told Joshua not to covenant with the Gibeonites, but to exterminate them. But would he have? He might have enlightened Joshua about who they really were, but he, but he also might have welcomed them like just a few chapters earlier in Joshua. We see he welcomed Rahab and her family. When these Hivites from Gibeon come to Joshua, even though they are lying and they are deceiving, they are doing so as a means of identifying with Israel. Now, not just with Israel as the people group, but identifying with Israel, whose name used to be Jacob, who at one time was also a lying deceiver. This is, this for them is ultimately a means of submitting to Joshua and to his God. Another surprise is, um, is that while the covenant with the Hivites at Shechem was related to Levi, and now these Hivites from Gibeon come into covenant here as servants to the Levites. We see in the chapter that they are made to be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the temple, for the sacrificial system. This was an integral part of the Levitical priesthood. The mechanics of it needed wood to burn and water to wash And so Joshua makes these Hivites from Gibeon, cutters of wood, drawers of water to serve the Levites. They are, uh, okay, so keep in mind now that the Hivites deceived Joshua. No, there's, there's no debate there. They deceived him. They lied. Joshua goes into this covenant without consulting God. He, he and the uh, elders of Israel Instead of consulting God, they look at all their evidence, their you know, deceiving evidence that they give, their moldy, crusty bread, and they say, oh, okay, you must be telling the truth. All right, let's go. Covenant. They did not consult God. That's a problem. That's a mistake on their part. But we see this is divine providence. So in other words, God did not say after they made that covenant, you know, God's not scream. You sit and you watch a football game and maybe some of you guys sit and scream at the TV. No, no, don't. He's coming, you know, turn around, whatever. They can't hear you. God's not up in heaven like that saying, Joshua, no, stop. They're tricking you. This is divine providence taking place here. So um, God didn't say afterward, well, dang it. They got me on a technicality, you know, darn Now I got to keep it. No, what we see in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua, we see in Joshua chapter 10, the Gibeonites, and because they covenanted now with Israel, they made their other nation buddies angry. And so their other nation buddies say, now we're going to kill you. And what does God do? He says, oh, Joshua, they need help. Go on, 
Go up to your brother's defense. We actually don't just see that. What we actually see is God himself fighting for these Gentiles. This is the story in Joshua chapter 10. This is the story where the sun stands still until the enemies are defeated. This is in the story. We see God himself hurling stones from heaven onto the enemies of Israel and the Gibeonites. If this covenant was simply held together by a technicality, Israel could have exploited their own loophole and simply not helped them. We said we wouldn't kill you. We didn't say anything about not letting other people kill you. So we're staying here. God sends them up. This wasn't a technicality. God fights for the Gibeonites. This was not a technicality. This was not a faux covenant. This was a God-ordained, God-sanctioned, god honored covenant that God kept much later in history, much later in history. If you still don't believe me much later in history, what you see King David, when he's King, there's a famine in the land three years. And so David inquires of the Lord, David, I mean, God, why is there a famine in the land for these three years? You know what God tells him? Well, Saul murdered the Gibeonites. He has blood guilt for killing the Gibeonites. So Jacob makes it right. God sends a famine onto his people, Israel, because Saul broke covenant. And instead of keeping the promise to not kill them, Saul in a display of nationalistic zeal kills the Gibeonites. God sends a famine and says, make it right, David. And so David makes it right. He gives them seven of Saul's sons as a symbolic completion of justice. And the Gibeonites hang seven of Saul's sons. Covenant is, uh, reconciliation takes place. God fights for these people. These are the people who tricked the Israelites into going into the covenant. They, They didn't, Consult God and God says, don't worry, Joshua. I've got it under control. Do you see that God's covenant covenant is everlasting? His promise is true. In Revelation chapter 5 and we see John's vision. It gives us a glimpse into the throne room of heaven where four living creatures and 24 elders fall down before the throne. They bow down and they sing uh, before the lamb that, that is standing. It says the lamb that is standing as slain and they sing a new song. And this is what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Did you hear that? You have by your blood, lamb, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We lie. Men lie. Men break covenants. Men break promises. Israelites lie. 
Hivites lie, but God does not lie. You lie, I lie, we lie, but God does not lie. This is why it's so beautiful when you go and you look at when God made covenant with Abraham. God, God, you, how you made a covenant back in the day was you split an animal and you walk through the blood. Each party would walk through the blood as a sign that we are making covenant. So God says, Abraham, let's make a covenant. And God splits the animal open and God, it, this cloud goes through. And Abraham, no doubt, is thrilled at this point. Thank you, God, for covenanting with me. Except now Abraham is terrified at this point. Um, I trust you're going to keep your end of the bargain because you're God. But I know myself. How am I going to keep my promise to you? I'm going to be slaughtered just like this animal is if I walk through here with you. And what does God do? Knocks Abraham out. He's, he's asleep. He's seen in, this vi- in a vision. And God, again, walks himself through. I will keep covenant with you, Abraham, by keeping the promise myself. By keeping my promise and by keeping your promise. This is exactly what we see when he sends his son to take our place. We lie, God doesn't lie. We break our promises, God keeps his promises. We break covenant, God keeps covenant. The words of Joseph that we will encounter later in Genesis that are from an altogether different context are more than perfect for this very situation. He's saying actually to this very same Simeon and Levi, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Can you imagine when Joshua spared those Hivites? The most conservative estimate you can conjure up. Can you imagine? Yeah, you can't imagine how many peoples came from those saved people. God, in his divine providence, kept a people for himself from that deceiving nation. Martin Luther pointed out and many men since him, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And all of you are testimonies to that. I am a testimony to that. We will fail. We will fall. We sin. We will sin big People we love will fail us. They will fail us in cruel and sinful ways. But I want you to rest assured that you cannot thwart God's plan. You cannot mess up his providence. They cannot mess up God's hand and plan for you and for your children. You may be a Hivite today. You may feel invisible or irrelevant or abandoned by God. You may feel like he is their God. He fights for them, but he's not my God. He doesn't fight for me. 
you may feel like you're staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. But today, if you will have him, he is yours. If you will have him, he is yours. Today, you can come to an even better Yeshua. An even better Yeshua for a sure and eternal promise. You are not beyond hope. Whether you are Dinah, who has been wronged, or whether you are Shechem, who has done wrong. Whether you are the men of Shechem, who are caught up in somebody else's mess. Whether you are Israel, whether you are a Hivite, you are not beyond hope. God's arm is not too short to find you, to shelter you. You are not beyond hope. Why? Because after three days, our Yeshua, our covenant brother, kept his promise. After three days, our Yeshua kept his promise and he stands to save you. After three days, the one who is the better Joshua, the one who is the better Levi, kept his promise and he stands to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the true and better Joshua to save us who were once not a people, but are now your people. Who once had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Gracious God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is your charge then. Hope in God who keeps his promise. When all you can see is the mess right in front of you, remember that as long as you are wearing this skin, your vantage point is the back of a tapestry. As long as you're on this side of the veil, your vantage point is the back of a tapestry. So trust your father's perfect and precious providence. When all you see are the loose ends, how in this world, God, are you going to make this good? How are you going to make this right? When all you see are the loose ends, remember that when you get to the other side, you will see a completed masterpiece and it will be beautiful. On the other side, you will see Christ as bright and clear as you see the noontime sun. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Amen. Go in peace.